Amen. Thanks, you guys. Uh, kids, you're dismissed. Off to class. Um, the rest of you, we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. Perfect love casts out fear. We're going to be directing our attention to the love of Jesus this morning. <clears throat> so in chapter 6, we saw Jesus preaching a sermon. Um, and now in chapter 7, we basically see him practicing what he preaches, going out and, and living out what he talked. If you want to put this in medical terms, we have this theme of the good doctor for uh, our sermon series. It's that Jesus basically gave a lecture to those who would carry on his practice, teaching them about the remedy, that he is the remedy, and now he's making his rounds. Here's the gospel difference about Jesus. The gospel difference is this. The doctor doesn't sit and wait for sick people to come to him. The doctor goes to the sick people. If you want to get a clear picture of Christianity, realize this. Christianity is not doing something for yourself. It's the good news that something has been done to you and for you and that we receive it. So if you ever think in your mind or hear someone saying, I'm, I'm working really hard at being a good Christian, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what Christianity is about. It's actually just good news about something that's been done to you and for you. Here are the house calls that we've already seen. A centurion's servant is sick. And with a mere word from a distance, Jesus displays his power over disease. Friends, that's good news. Greta talked about a woman whose husband had already died, and now she's on the way to bury her son. And Jesus comes, and with a touch and a command to a person, he reveals his deity by displaying power over death. This is good news. Today, the patient is Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist. And the, and the ailment is that familiar foe, doubt. We just sang this, that God is hard to get. God is hard to get, but he's worth getting. Think about most things of value in life that don't come easy. Good quality relationships. Achievements. In academics or athletics or aesthetics. Excellence in some pursuit. Certainly the answers to life, sort of the big questions of life. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? What's my purpose? What's my destiny? Where am I going? These are big, difficult questions to pursue. They're certainly worth the price paid. What God is up to is often hazy to us. Jesus' time here on earth cleared up a lot of things, but Jesus' time here on earth raised a whole new series of questions. God doesn't give us everything at once and then sort of stand back and wait for us to make a decision. Here's everything, now you decide yes or no. It seems that what God does is he parcels out truth to us in his wisdom and in his timing. If you've been pursuing God for any length of time, if you've been pursuing some deep truth for any length of time, you realize often you want more than what God seems to be giving you right in that moment. And there's sort of this give and pull. There's sort of a dance that goes on with it. Proverbs 25.2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Jesus is the exact representation of God. 
So we see this nature of God on display as we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus told stories when people wanted specifics. I frustrate you sometimes in this room because I read from the Bible and I teach from the Bible and I'm telling you some parable and you're like, just give me the answer. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to mimic my Savior. I'm just reading from what he taught us to to learn from. Isn't it true that we want specifics in life and then Jesus tells us a story in our quiet time that morning? And we go, just give me the answer. Jesus seemed to live his story much more than he stopped and explained what he was doing. It seems that Jesus never gives interviewers a straight answer to the questions. In fact, more often than not, he asks his own question back to people who are asking questions of him. Sometimes as you read the scripture, it seems as if he's putting words into their mouth. As I read the four gospels, here's what I realize. Jesus often makes it harder for people to believe, not easier. Here's what I think is going on. Think that you could look at Jesus and say, Jesus is not trying to win an argument. He's trying to build relationships. If he was trying to win an argument, think about these interactions with people. He would just blow them away with whatever culturally in that moment would have, would have been needed. Instead, there, again, there is this sort of push and pull dance. Jesus wants us to grow in our trust of him. I want you to take a pen or pencil right now, and I want you to open up your notes. I want you to write down one of three words that best describes you. When you are in doubt, when doubt comes up in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your emotions, would you say that you are fight, flight, or freeze? So a doubt wells up in you. Do you tend to fight that doubt? Do you tend to flee and, and dismiss it from your mind as quickly as possible, sometimes with the help of a trinket or a lighting thing or something that just gets your mind off of it? Or do you freeze? Do you not know what to do? Now, I know those are three really broad categories, but, but actually write one of those down. What is your first gut response of what you do when doubt arises? Here is the central truth that I want you to remember this morning, and that's this. It's written in your notes for you. That Jesus restores our faith by refuting our doubts. Jesus restores our faith by refuting our doubts. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Follow along if you would. It says, The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Here's how I've broken up this morning. We have a lot to get to. Uh, But I just want to look at Jesus and how he interacted with different people. I'm going to spend the most amount here with Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist, and then we'll kind of go quickly with with the others. Okay, I need some actual feedback. What's the relationship we know about Jesus and John the Baptist? There's a lot written about John the Baptist comparatively to a lot of other people. What do we know about the relationship between Jesus and John? They're cousins. They're they're biological cousins. Yes, what else? They're outsiders. They're outsiders. Give me 10 seconds on what that means. How, How come? 
Right. Right. That's a that's a great point. Both of them are sort of veering off the path of what's sort of normal and culturally acceptable. What else? They were womb buddies. There's some people that you know that you just go, I've known this person since before they were alive. That's not maybe technically true, but it's sort of true. Like your moms were friends and you guys were, you know, your parents were there and, and all that. So that, that's exactly right. There was an interaction between these two in the womb. They go way back. All right. Um, what, what was John's sort of specific role in comparison to Jesus? Like let's fast forward to their, their adult life a little bit. What was, what was John called to do? He was the forerunner. He was the messenger going, going ahead saying there's the, the Messiah is coming, right? So, so he's the forerunner to Jesus. Um, who baptized Jesus? John the Baptist. Okay, so, so again, there's, there's, some, there's some scenes here. There's some history here. What's happening in this passage is this. We know from other places, Matthew's account makes it really clear that John is in prison at this point. John is languishing in a prison, and John is having a crisis of faith. Let me tell you this. No matter what your spiritual persuasion is this morning, no matter what your worldview is, um, you too have had crises of faith. So if you have ever been in a relationship, if you have ever sort of formed a, for, formed a worldview, you have, because you look at the world through a certain kind of lens. You often don't focus or think about that lens, but you have a worldview. If you've ever followed anyone, if you've ever followed any kind of leader in any uh, situation, that means all of us have had crises of faith. For really good reason, people had a crisis of faith with regard to Facebook recently, right? Why did people get uptight about Facebook? Huh? Right. Like there was there was a hack and, and you're 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 exposed by, by what you have, have, have put on there. We trusted them. That's right. So 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 in many, many scenarios, a crisis of faith occurs. Some are huge, some are small. If you've ever been following someone or thinking about the world a certain way, and then you go, wait a minute, is this even true? Am I being duped? Do I have this wrong? Have I been lied to? Can I trust you anymore? Who are you? John is having a crisis of faith regarding Jesus. So John's in good company. Everyone has experienced this. Maybe you've experienced this before where you've given your life to Jesus and then life doesn't pan out the way you expected it to and you think in your mind, I want it back. I want my life back from Jesus. As a youth pastor in this city for many, many years, I've watched people who've given their life to Jesus and taken it back. What's going on right there? There was some kind of crisis of faith that has gone on. Perhaps this morning you're sitting in here and I'm describing you. This isn't just a little blip on the radar crisis. This is a season of crisis that's happening. I really identify with John in this. He had quite the spiritual resume by now. He had been uh, doing things for God, been on Jesus' team. He's seen God move in some powerful ways, but clearly had different expectations of what it meant to be in relationship with Jesus. I had a two-word prayer in my probably early 20s that betrayed my inner thoughts about my expectations about God. 
Uh, by this point, I had had a career change for Jesus. I was headed on one path, and I felt God calling me into ministry, to full-time pastoral ministry. So I'd already been doing uh, that for a season. wasn't a pastor yet. I was still in school. I had a social change for Jesus. What that meant is this. There were some people that I just thought, man, these people are bringing me down. I'm not strong enough to be with them. I need to break off some relationships. God, would you surround me with people that are going to help encourage me and, and, um, and lift me up? I had a complete internal turnaround. And one day I'm driving and my car broke down. This isn't overly unusual in my youth. I had many, many cars that broke down. In fact, I can drive all around the city and remember waiting for tow trucks. But I'm driving my car, and here's the two-word prayer that, that betrayed what was going on internally. Here it was. Ready? Come on, God! That was it. And as I sat there waiting... For AAA, who they probably knew me by, by, by first name by that point, I sat there, and, and what that prayer betrayed was this. I had expectations. In fact, I think I was even doing an errand for God. That's how I saw it. And my car broke down. What was going on right there? What's going on right there is I was having a little crisis of faith. I think many people have walked away from the faith because they have put expectations on things God would do that God never promised to do. I've looked. I can't find a verse that says God's going to make my car run smoothly all the time. I love my car when it runs. I despise my car when it doesn't run. As I sat there and sort of mulled this over, I actually really felt convicted, and I thought, boy, like, like that began to, 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 to run over me, this idea of accusation, this idea of resentment, misplaced resentment. You know what I thank God for? I thank God that I stayed in relationship and that I grew through that. There was a, there's, a, there's a trust that has gone on um, from that event. I was applying my best thoughts on friendship to Jesus. That is, if I had the power to do my friend a solid, I wouldn't withhold that from him, especially if he's off doing an errand for me. That's the way my rationale went. John's circumstances like mine, brought to light some cracks in his confidence. John had been going through life, and circumstances change, as circumstances do. And all of a sudden, you, you discover some cracks in your faith. You discover some cracks in your confidence that you thought were there, and it begins to cause you to question. And so it leaves it with us. What do we do in those moments? What do we do when we say, boy, this is not how I thought life was going to turn out. Let me keep reading. Verse 21 says this. It says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. Jesus doesn't rebuke John for doubting. That's huge. Jesus doesn't rebuke John for doubting. He refutes his doubts by providing evidence. Keeping with sort of this architecture theme that we looked at a couple weeks ago from Jesus' sermon. This is from uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 47, a chapter over. 
He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. It could not be shaken because it had been well built. Jesus doesn't rebuke John for doubting. He refutes his doubts by providing evidence. James says that you're blessed when you encounter various kinds of trials. Listen to me. That includes spiritual trials. That includes doubts. What does it create? It creates perseverance. These doubts, these cracks in the foundation, these little creeps that come into the confidence of what's, what's, what are you doing, God, causes you to lean in, causes you suddenly to have time to discover things and pursue God and seek the scriptures and earnestly pray and meet with other people that you didn't have time for last week. Why? Because circumstances have changed. And what you thought may have been true of God, maybe you're not so sure anymore. Jesus gifts John with three things, evidence, scripture, and encouragement. Let me walk through these really quickly. First, evidence. John had already heard of the miracles. That's what probably prompted this inquiry in the first place. Verse 18 says um, that, the, that he re- reported all these things. The report of others is often enough for us, but not in this season. For John, he's in a different season. John is in a trust crisis. Look at your Bibles for a second at verse 21. So the report of these things probably prompted this inquiry. And then it says this in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus went to work in front of John's friends. He performed miracles in front of them. Then he sends them with this message. Now you, disciples of John, you go tell John what you have seen and heard. What does Jesus do with John's doubt? He gives him supernatural, concrete evidence. He doesn't refute, I mean, he doesn't rebuke John for doubting. How dare you? Instead, he provides supernatural pointers, signs to his disciples to say, now you go tell him what you've seen and heard. These are no longer third-party reports. These are the reports of the very one uh, seeking the answers for John. God does this in various times and in various ways, and I can't begin to tell you how or why or when he chooses to or not. A couple of weeks ago, we, were, we had carved out a day of, of mostly prayer, prayer and planning for Foster the Bay. And there was a group of us that were there. We met over at Calvary Church. We were there and uh, and we had been handed out some cards to pray over every single of the 70-plus partner churches by name and every single one of the foster families that had taken steps of faith. And so we began to pray. And I was handed a stack of cards, and uh, we just randomly took, I think we were all supposed to take a certain number or whatever, and then we were going to wander around for 20 minutes. The first card I looked at, uh, that, that I, second card that I took, I prayed for this first family, didn't know them. I flipped the second card over, Rob and Julie Collins. I just said, God, thank you so much. You know whose birthday it was that day? Rob's birthday. So I just took a picture. I said, Rob, praying for you guys today. Love you. Then later on that day, we're, we're in this meeting, and one of our uh, teammates said, hey, I, I just got word from the county. This rarely happens. This is not the lane of Foster the Bay. But she said, there's a 13-year-old girl who needs to be placed, and uh, she's involved in her youth group. She's, she's, she's doing great in school. Like She's just this great kid, and, and just needs a loving, stable home. And so we, we just stopped and prayed. 
We can sort of hear all the big numbers out here, but we're moved by individual stories, aren't we? And as we prayed, there were just tears around that table, thinking, here's a 13-year-old girl. Statistically, she won't get picked up out of the foster care system. So we just begged God, God, you care for her. Would you provide a miracle? We went about our meeting. We finished up. We came home. I went to work the next day, came home, went to work the next day. So within 48 hours, one of our teammates that had gotten that initial thing, she said, let me just give you the testimony of our powerful God. She said, five Foster the Bay families stepped forward to say, we'll take that girl. Two of them were within her school district, so she didn't ever have to leave her school even. So God doesn't answer prayer like that every time, but aren't you glad when he does? That was just concrete evidence that said, Dave, if you had any whisper, and I didn't, if you have any whisper of a thought that maybe it's a waste of a day to go and pray all day, don't think it's a waste. God gave us, God gave that little team this really powerful concrete thing of saying, press on, keep going. I'm right here moving in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. Jesus gifted John the Baptist with concrete evidence. He also points him back to Scripture. This is really powerful. Don't miss this. Jesus points John back to Scripture when he's doubting. In the very midst of a storm of doubt, he says, let's go back to the Scripture. Look at verse 22. It says, and he answered them. Who's them? That's the disciples bring report back to John. So he answers them, and what does he answer them with? It's kind of like a, it's like an Isaiah smoothie. There's just a whole bunch of bits of Isaiah that are sort of blended up in here. All Jesus is doing is quoting from the scriptures. He's saying, you report back to John that these things are happening. And so he reveals himself to John by quoting about prophecies about himself. What is John's question? Luke puts John's question in here twice. Anytime there's something said twice and it feels redundant, it feels redundant to the Western mind like, okay, we get it. Let's let's move on. It's for emphasis. Look at it yourself. What is John's very specific doubt? What is his question? Are you the one to come? Or should we be waiting for someone else? This cuts right to the core of John's crisis of faith that's happening. Are you the one? Do I have this wrong? Jesus is meeting John right where he's at specifically. And he is pointing John to remember what has been written down since before he was born. The ancient text becomes living and active sword to destroy his doubts. Here's a little fun fact. What was Jesus' first sermon that he preached? It was from this text. It was from bits of this text. Remember that? We, we, we looked at this in, in Luke 3. That he goes and he gives his first sermon and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Puts the scroll back and he sits down. It says, Everyone's eyes were on him. Whoa! So all Jesus is doing is pointing him back to scripture. Even more specific to John's doubt goes to who John is and what John's specifically called to do. Well, who's John? He's a prophet. He thinks in dualistic terms, black or white, right or wrong, blessed or cursed. 
Nuance is lost on hardcore prophets. What was his message? His message was this. Messiah is coming, and it's bad news for sinners if you don't repent. That's sort of the modern vernacular of John's message. Hell, fire, brimstone, repeat. That was John's methodology. God is coming to judge and clean house. Luke 3, he says, wrath to come, repent. The axe is at the root, ready to chop down and throw into the fire. That's who John is. That's the message he's been giving to, 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 to speak forth from God. And now he's hearing reports about his cousin, this Jesus who is the Messiah, the one he pointed to publicly and said, there he is, that he baptized and the Holy Spirit came down, the whole deal. Now he hears about his cousin's do-good campaign, blessing people who should be repenting or else they're going to get chopped down. John may have even received word of the miraculous mercy on a Roman military man that Jesus healed his servant. As if this weren't enough, right and wrong John, that's probably his nickname, right and wrong John is sitting in a prison wrongfully accused. Some of you are raising little mini prophets, little mini black and white, right and wrong, blessed, cursed personalities. Let me ask you, parents, those kids who are high profit, like, no, this, things are either right or wrong, how well do they let things go if they've been wrongfully accused? Do they just let that go? No. John is sitting wrongfully accused in a prison. And Jesus comes and he speaks to the question he had. He speaks to the very core of who John is and to the very core life purpose of what John's been called to do and into the very specific place that he's sitting. Jesus meets John in his doubt. John doesn't get what he wants, but evidently he got what he most needed. We can see this because John would prove faithful even to the end. How did John's physical life here on earth end? He lost his head. Didn't renounce Jesus. Didn't turn back. Would it be safe to say that John's house was well built? That when the storm came, when the storm of doubt came and beat on that house, that John survived? I think we could look from the testimony of his life that that's exactly what happened. You know, the journey to trusting Jesus has some, has some similarities amongst all of us. I, I listen to and think about a lot of people's stories. Let me give you four really quick things, sort of as an aside, but, but if you're newer at this or if you're somewhere along, we're all on a journey, right? We're all spiritually forming. Number one is this. It's not readily apparent who Jesus is exactly. As we walk our way through Luke, there, there are little signs happening. We know how the end of the story goes. We're still confused by it. We just sang it. We sing of a love that we can't comprehend. We don't understand Jesus completely. We, we won't while we're in these bodies. But it certainly isn't readily apparent who Jesus is. John's little soul leapt in the womb praising him, and now he's questioning who Jesus might be. Number two is this. It's not readily apparent what Jesus is up to, even when he tells us the answer. From Jesus' own mouth, he says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. 
Got it. Now we read the Gospels and we go, wait, how is that accomplishing that? Think about what John wanted on a big scale and a small scale. John the Baptist wanted cleansing on the earth. He was preaching forth the message. He knew what God was up to, but he also wanted to get out of prison. Think about the disciples. Disciples wanted to overthrow Roman rule and personally to take a seat next to Jesus and and rule with him. Everyone who's come after Jesus and asking questions about Jesus, we all have sort of these grand ideas about what, what God should be doing up here. And by the way, if you could just let my car run, please, without me having to do much maintenance on it. So everyone since then has been having these same things. It's not really clear what, what Jesus is up to. Number three, it takes a while for us to sync up with God's schedule or timetable. When will you reveal yourself, Jesus? That's what uh, some of his hometown crowd mocked him. What we see with Jesus is he's not hurried or pressured to act. The more that you walk with God, the more you get in sync with his rhythms. And here's what you'll be surprised at. I think you'll be surprised at his quickness sometimes, and you'll be shocked at his slowness sometimes. There are times I go, how did this, this happened, this, wait a minute, I prayed for it here. This had to have taken place before I even prayed for it. God, you put it in my heart to pray for it. You were already moving. You already knew what you were going to do. You left me in the dark until this moment. I actually thanked God. I remember thanking God in my office. God, thank you for not having that 13-year-old girl get somehow miraculously placed before we cried about it and prayed about it. Thank you for letting us... Continue to pray on it for about 48 more hours. Thank you for that delay. You'll be shocked sometimes of how quickly God acts and moves. And you'll be utterly shocked at how slowly God moves sometimes. God sees the beginning from the end. And sometimes his rhythms are far more like trying to watch a plant grow and stare at it. And if you don't get in rhythm of some of that, it'll frustrate you and cause undue doubt. Number four is this. It's often confusing what success looks like. Think about Peter just really quickly. Jesus, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. No, you have to unless you won't be, otherwise you won't be a part of me. Okay, then all of me. No, that's going too far. You've had a bath. Like, we don't need that. Oh, okay. How about Peter? Uh, we should build a temple here. He got shushed by the Almighty. Shh! Stop talking, Peter. Don't, we're not doing stuff right now. Just be quiet. Jesus lays out the victory of the cross, and here's Peter's response. Never! (laughs) That will never happen to you! And Jesus, who just affirmed Peter, saying, wow, you just made a great statement about me on this rock, I'll build my church, all that. In the very next breath, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Peter just became Satan's mouthpiece by saying that will never happen to you. Aren't you encouraged by Peter? I am. You may see some of your own story in these things, not immediately apparent who Jesus is, what he's up to, when he's supposed to be doing it, and what success even looks like. Remember as you grow spiritually that just like growing up physically, it can be painful, it can be embarrassing, it can be awfully confusing. The fact that Jesus gifts John the Baptist with evidence, with scripture, with encouragement, means this. What if we channel our doubt in ways that make it a nourishment rather than something toxic to our life? 
What if we engage in the search the way that the Bereans did, who, according to, to Acts 17, examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so? Very next verse, ready? Many of them, therefore, believed. Why did they believe? Ultimately, all belief is a gift of God, right? It's a spiritual work. But they had a participation in it. They said, wait a minute, is this even true? And they went back to the ancient living text to see if these things were accurate. And it says, many of them therefore believed as a direct result of them taking their doubts and their questions to God and to the scriptures. Belief grew out of that. What an example to follow. So read your Bible and pray every day. That's a cute little song and it's really good advice. You know what ends up happening? You you end up marveling at how specific and personal God is. He will allow you to read things. He will call to mind things that you have read in very specific circumstances of your life. You did this on a daily basis. I'm seeing some nods, especially from those older believers. You know why? Because they can think back and go, wow, you know when my doubts don't have time to fester and grow into some giant, enormous problem? It's when I'm praying. It's when I'm in, wrestling with God in prayer. It's when I'm in the Word. My little doubts come up, and God's able to chop them down. He's able to refute them with Scripture. I read this this week in just my, my basic reading plan. This is from Psalm 94.12. It made me think of this. It says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. You know who had access to this? John the Baptist. This was the songbook he would have grown up singing in church from. Wait a minute. I'm blessed as God teaches me from his law that will give me rest here in prison, understanding that the wicked are going to have a pit dug for them. God's going to deal with vengeance. Not my job. I have no power to do that right now. Right and wrong, John, can let it go can trust in in God for that. All right. Jesus gives John evidence. He gives him scripture and he gives him a little bit of encouragement. Look at verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You say, how on earth is that encouragement? By the way, encouragement simply means to pour courage into. That's what the word means. Encouragement. Jesus says, I'm going to pour some courage into you. How is that an encouragement? Here's how. Jesus is saying, keep going and don't give up. Remember the hashtag blessed life? We see people wear hashtag blessed. Many people, I think, have no idea what that even means. That means generally right now my bank account's not on fire. Uh, my car is running, <laughs> if you're me, in, in college. Um, and I'm well fed and I got some new clothes yesterday. Hashtag blessed. Jesus says the hashtag blessed life is not, John, outside of prison without me. It's not inside prison without me. It's not anywhere without me. It's with me. So no matter where you are, what you wear, what you eat, who you hang out with, life with me is where it's at. Don't be offended by me. He says, don't trip over how I do things. Don't get tripped up over when I do things. Don't get tripped up if I do things. You leave my things to myself. Don't get offended by me. Don't trip up over me. Stay with me. I have a plan. I am for you in every way. John, trust me and keep on trusting me. Evidently, again, this gift of evidence given back, scripture given to him, and this encouragement. Again, we can look at the history. It worked. 
John stayed faithful to the end. So now Jesus turns from, from John uh, to talking to the crowds about John. Look at verse uh, 24. Verse 24 says this. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know, what happens in life is of some importance to us. The way that we interpret the events of our life, I think, carries equal or even more weight. Here's why. That's what lodges in our memory. That's what we end up responding to emotionally and even logically, not necessarily the events. Let me give you a thought around this. When it comes to evidence for or against the existence of God, for or against the validity of Scripture, for or against the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are all looking at the same data. Those who would be adamantly opposed to those realities and those who would have devoted their life to those realities. So what's happening here is deciphering the clues that are presented to us and forming a narrative about what's going on. You know what Jesus is doing right here by commenting on John? He's providing a narrative. He's saying, well, see John sitting in prison. We could jump to the conclusion, must be cursed of God. <laughs> must have been a false prophet. God's, God's shut him up, put him in a prison. Jesus says, let me explain to you what's really going on. So think about this. The circumstances of our life are part of it. What's really going on is the other part of it. Fear is a liar. There is an enemy of your soul whispering a narrative. There is a wide path, friends, that is leading to people's death. So the most common and repeated message may very well not be the actual storyline of what's going on. So Jesus provides narrative to the crowds about John. What does he say? He's, he calls him the greatest. Why is John the greatest? It's not because he's a blood relative of Jesus. It's not because somehow John is personally more righteous than the rest of us. It's not because John was a crazy good speaker. John is called the greatest because of his office. His office makes him noteworthy. John is the last in a long line of prophets, and he is closing out this season of, of, of history where now Jesus, the Son of God, has, has arrived and is now publicly being made known. And what God's doing, the central focal point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is preceded by the cross of Jesus Christ, is on display. And so because of his office, he's the greatest. He's unique to all others because he's the final one. Think about the Olympic torch for a moment. What's the most notable leg of that race? It's the last person running with that torch, right? Why are any of those people on TV when we watch the Olympics? Because they're carrying the Olympic torch. 
The torch is sort of what makes those people notable, but none of you can remember several legs back of, of who was running it. But we all can remember sort of these visuals of the left person. That's who John was. John fulfilled. He closed out this season, and he's pointing the way to say, there, behold, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Now Jesus turns his attention from, from discussing John, and he's now going to talk about the crowds. Look at verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Those are the people who received John's message of repentance. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Jesus now says this, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? Hmm. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's his favorite term for himself, Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus says this, this generation is like spoiled children. You can't stand John because he's too rustic, too out there, so you dismiss him as a demon. You're offended by Jesus because he does what you consider surprising things with surprising people. Who received John's message and baptism? Well, the the text says that People, so just sort of randomly, and when the people heard it, and the tax collectors too. Luke makes a point of, of, of sort of highlighting this class of people, the, the tax collectors. So who received it? It was the humble and the have-nots. Who rejected the message of John's repentance and now Jesus? It's the prideful and the haves. The Pharisees, the lawyers, what are they doing? They're protecting their little minuscule slice of life that they've accumulated, and they're making a bad trade. They're trying to keep what, they, what little they have, not understanding the status they would gain if they would lay down themselves and follow this king. Jesus actually talks about us in this passage as well. Look at verse 28 one more time. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a king. What does a king do? He rules over a real kingdom. What is he doing right now, and what was he doing then? He is populating his kingdom with followers. He is gifting them access. The most basic run-of-the-mill sinner that you would look by a hundred times a day, like a beggar at a gate on the way to, to, to some place that, that you would frequent, they have more status. They have more inheritance. They have more power. They have more glory. Anyone in the kingdom of God than the highest we could think of here on earth. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out. I told you we had a lot to cover. Let me leave you with this. I've given you on your notes four things to write down. These are, these are just four ideas um, of, of what, what do you do when you're in doubt. Notice I said when you're in doubt, not if you're in doubt. I think just the expectation, knowing and understanding that we are going to have doubts is a huge step. But here's number one, name them. 
write out your disappointments and your questions. It's actually really powerful to write down. If I were to have written down while waiting for AAA, my car isn't running. It would probably dawn on me because I was a Bible college student at the time. God never promised my Pinto to run. Actually, it was a Ford Escort by that point. 15-year-old Ford Escorts break down. (laughs) That actually is reaffirmed by the curse that came on the world in Genesis. So maybe that's actually biblical that I'm sitting here on the side of the road. Name your disappointments. Name your doubts. Not all doubts are the same. Some are volitional. That's a battle of wills. Some are spiritual. Remember in the garden, did God really say? So sometimes we have these spiritual doubts. Some are evidential. Hey, are there good answers for this? I heard that people just threw the Bible together to sort of keep women down and keep slavery intact. Is that true? That's an evidential question. Some are emotional. You get to life, you're cruising along fine. All of a sudden, you don't want to come to church. You don't want to read your Bible. You don't want to pray. You don't want to see any other Christian. You know why? You had an emotional hurt in your life. You had an unimaginable loss happen. And your two-word prayer is, come on, God. And you're in a crisis of faith. What do you do with that? Write them down. Here's step number two. Step number two is bring the list to Jesus. I would plead with you, if you are in a crisis of faith, That's a unique season of your life. What you do in this moment matters. Find the time daily to be in conversation with these doubts that you have. Again, when you're going through a crisis, you find time in your schedule to do things. Suddenly TV shows, they don't hold any interest to you. You don't have the gumption or or whatnot to go out to eat, to go do things. Hunker down and and get, get the work done. Voice these to God. Turn to the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with prayers just like these. Ask God to give you evidence. Number three, engage in the search for truth. Be like the Bereans. God loves questions. Hear me. God loves your questions. And he's big enough to handle them. It's telling that John knew he could bring his doubts to Jesus. He wasn't going to get shamed for it, rebuked by it. He thought Jesus might be able to give some answers. He still does. Jesus himself said, ask, seek, and knock. And the language says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. 1 John 2 says to test the spirits. That's inviting you, Christian, to investigate, think, reason, glorify God with all your mind. He gave you a logical thinking brain. Use it. To worship God. Pray the doubter's prayer found in Mark, 20, uh, Mark 9, 24. It says, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. I would hope our come on God prayers turn into the doubter's prayer. I do believe God, help my unbelief. We have a sermon series on our, on our website called Grow to Go. It's a probably six or seven or eight week apologetic series. Go and listen to that. Find other resources online. Finally, this, and Travis and Lindsay, if you guys would come on up front. Stay in the word and stay in community. God has this way of surrounding me with truth. This happened recently to me. You can hear something in a sermon on Sunday morning. You can hear something in a lyric of a song. And then you go and two days later you're reading in your, in your pre-prescribed quiet time reading plan. And God hits you with the same exact truth. And then later that day you're having a conversation. And that same exact truth hits you. And pretty soon it dawns on you. God, you're surrounding me with this truth right now. 
Stay in community. Stay in the word. When that happened to me recently, I said, God, I get it. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you for speaking to me personally. Thank you for parenting me so well that you want to make sure I didn't miss this truth that you were preaching to me. I leave you with this scripture, and this shows that you have a role in this church from Jude. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And look at verse 22. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Just like Jesus did to his cousin John.